This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have a very special guest. He is my boss, my partner, most of all a friend. He is the CEO of DLC Management, Adam Ifshin. Welcome to the show. So Adam, you are an entrepreneur, and why don't you tell us a little bit about DLC and how you lead this organization and your take on leadership in the real estate industry today? Right, well, thanks, Chris, for having me on. And I, you know, it's kind of funny to talk to you about my my biography or my CV, given that you've known me for so long and have, we've worked together for so long. But I think I think the simple thing, I think two things from a personal background perspective is first and foremost, I consider myself um, a team building entrepreneur. I don't consider myself a portfolio builder or an asset aggregator. I've always considered myself a team building entrepreneur. And I hope one day that people will remember me in the industry as a guy who built a phenomenal team that could do incredible, could overcome incredible challenges and have great success more than being remembered for any one deal we did or asset or redevelopment we did or trend one transaction we did. That's the first part. I guess the second part, and maybe for younger people in the audience who don't know me as well. You know, most people who, who end up running their own business in our space um, as an owner, redeveloper, developer, whatever you want to call it, typically come up in one of two tracks, right? They either come up on the development slash leasing side, or they come up on the capital markets slash acquisition side. And, you know, different Different CEOs come up in different ways. We all know people who've come up in both tracks. I think perhaps one of the things that, that makes my experience and, and road to getting where I am with DLC today is really that I didn't have a track, is that I did both. Um, I never thought of myself only as a finance guy, and I never thought of myself only as a deal guy or a developer or an acquirer or a leasing guy. And at times I think it's led for people to be like somewhat confused. But for me, because I really do consider myself, you know, truly first and foremost, a team building entrepreneur, um, it, that has grounded me, right? I, I'm always trying to think of all of the different stakeholders and how to balance them out and how to balance the risk associated with them out. So that's, you know, obviously that's the tenants and the tenants customer, the consumer, and that's, you know, our stakeholders, first and foremost, our team and our investment partners, big and small, and our lenders. And I think the fact that I came up 
doing, having to know how to teach myself essentially how to do all of those different things. Um, that sort of has infused DLC in my view as not being all about the finances or all about any one deal or any one relationship with one tenant. So I think that's the one thing I would say that is probably a little bit different than a lot of other people who you see as the CEO of a company like ours. Why'd you take the team building entrepreneur mentality into real estate? Why not a different venue? So, you know, because <laughs> um, I'm not that inventive and I'm the son of a real estate broker and a son of a failed uh, residential real estate developer. And I wanted to be partners with my father. And I never thought of doing anything other than real estate. Um, I grew up around it. You know, my father did brokerage deals with, you know, Harry Helmsley, you know, all of the big New York landlords, Hearts Mountain and the Fisher brothers and the Rudens and the Resnicks and, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world like General Motors. And, um, but at the end of the day, Lord knows he even did deals with Trump. Um, yeah, I, I never thought about doing anything other than real estate. It's kind of funny. And in, in retrospect, I missed the whole tech boom as a result of it. But I've always believed, I, I always loved the concept that if you did something and you did it well, that it could create for you a recurring you know, income stream. I found that very, very attractive since I had grown up in a house where you know, you knew exactly at eight years old how good the commercial brokerage business was because it, it was exactly the quality of what was on the plate. <laughs> you know, less protein or hamburger, not a good year. Mom, you know, crying over the soup, not a good month. But like, oh, we're going on vacation? Must be a really good year in commercial real estate. Having grown up at a house that rose and fell financially based on the vicissitudes of the brokerage market, and the deal volume market, I, I was very, very interested in how could I build a business that was interesting and fascinating and challenging, but if it worked, you could create recurring cash flow streams. I was inherently, and I still am to this day, far more risk adverse than my dad was. So when I set out in 1991 with him, I wanted to do something that I hoped would ultimately you know, create durable cash flow streams for us. You say more risk adverse than your father. I might say you're risk tolerant. If I were to put you in the risk bucket, at least compared to other industry C-suite people, it would feel like you're risk tolerant and, and that's paid dividends for you over the years. What's your take on that? Well, I think who the quote unquote leaders of the industry are have changed so dramatically in the 29 years since I started DLC, you know, when I started DLC in 1991, the leaders of the industry were not CEOs of public companies with exceptional, you know, governance rules and low leverage. I mean, the, 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 the CEOs were, I mean, they were cowboys, right? These were, these were people who worked on 110% leverage and you know, they would do whatever it take to sign, go figure, a Kmart lease, right? Hmm. The reality is, is that who you look up to as leadership in our industry has changed so dramatically from a, 
the guy that always is in is in my mind is there was a there was a local developer in Westchester County who was like voracious, a guy named Bernie Rosenschein. And, you know, he was, you know, when, when we first looked at the, the shopping center business, the guy was everywhere, building everything, showing up at job site meetings in his Rolls Royce and his $4,000 suits. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, t- it was like foreign. It was like you, the, the guy had to have more money than God. Turns out he really, you know, he had a tough time in that, in that first <laughs> real estate depression because what he had was immense leverage. But the people who, who seemingly made a lot of money from nothing and were the people that people looked up to, you know, I didn't know any of them in 1991. I didn't even know that ICSC existed. And I didn't know that ICSC had a board, let alone now, 29 years later, I'm on the executive board of the entity. But those were the people who were the founders of the industry, the guys who built, you know, the malls of America, the Al Taubmans, the Mellon Herb Simons, the David Hawkers the Richard Jacobs and, and all of their open air counterparts, you know, and there were so many of them. Now, I guess I look more risk tolerant because of the people who are our size, DLC size and bigger in open air shopping center, right? They're only, I mean, maybe there are five or six groups that aren't pure institutions that are bigger than us that are privately held, right? And rightly or wrongly, people like me get compared to lots of public company CEOs and we may operate at 60 or 65% leverage. And they all, most of them, not all of them, many of them operate at 40% or less. And in many instances, the public company reap game in open air shopping centers, I tell, say this all the time, they look awfully like open-ended core funds with daily liquidity. And they don't really have a lot in common with buying underperforming assets and redoing them. Now, some of them do some selective you know, ground up development and they do it very well. And some of them do some selective redevelopment. So maybe I look more risk tolerant because of the nature of what we do and compared to who other CEOs are now today, you know, managing large pools essentially of institutional money. Um, but compared to the people that I looked at when I started the business, I think I'm pretty risk adverse. You know, you've heard me say this before, Chris. I think of being an entrepreneur, the, the, the first two absolute things as an entrepreneur, company owner, no matter what the business is you have to do is first, you have to build, be an incredible builder of teams and creators and nurturers of cultures and defenders of phenomenal business cultures. That's always number one. People always come first. But the second most important thing is at the end of the day, you have to be your own best risk manager. You can't, you can't delegate that to someone else. You can't, um, you can't, you know, hire or have a risk management committee, even if you're public at the end of the day, I believe that, you know, one of the CEO's fundamental core responsibilities is to be the penultimate risk manager for the organization, for the entity, and to infuse the culture of the organization and the people with an appropriate balance between how can you be, even if you are not the entrepreneur, how can you be entrepreneurial in our culture? But how can you also be um, a reasonable risk mitigator and a reasonable risk manager at the same time? And I know that can sound counterintuitive, but you can't have only risk taking with no governor. And if you're so risk adverse that 
it's very hard to be an entrepreneur and and not be prepared to take some level of risk if you want to if you want to create genuine wealth. That's unbelievable insight. So I, I think the listeners will will enjoy that. I think the other thing before we get into the story about the deal, you're an entrepreneur, but CEO of a you know 120 person company in in today's world maybe even pre-COVID-19, what is a CEO doing today? And, and maybe, you know, describe some of the interactions between you and myself potentially and some other C-suite members at DLC so people can get an idea of, you know, from an accountant to a leasing person to the difference in what's happening um, higher up the food chain in organizations. So... I think that I think the first thing to take a step back is is that you grow and you change as a CEO just like anybody who grows and changes and and develops and I look back on the CEO the CEO I was the first 10 15 years of DLC and it's not a pretty picture to be candid with you and I think that how I think about what my role in the organization is, is very, very different now than it was even five or 10 years ago. I'm much more focused on team building, culture building, culture defending, and infusing people with responsibility and knowledge so that they can accept responsibility and excel at the opportunities that having that responsibility presents for them. I'm not as young as I used to be. And, you know, the days of, you know, me single-handedly dragging any given deal or transaction over the finish line, I've learned is a negative, is actually a negative outcome for the organization. I think that one of the things I am proud of is that talking to you today, I don't think that I've ever granted more responsibility and spent more time teaching as a CEO than I have in the last six to 12 months. And I, I'm not that young anymore. And at 55, uh, almost 55 years old, I'd like to believe that that's the way of the future and the path forward is how many great talented people can we develop at DLC? And can I have a hand in because one of the things about our business is it's infinitely more complex than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And as business gets more complex, you have to have better, ever better communication, collaboration, and team cohesion, three C's. And you have to have better people who you were prepared to give more and more responsibility to, um, you know, as you know, over the last year, um, we parted ways with a couple of people who I think were very, very strong individual performers, but we ultimately determined that they were not good team players and they were not good at allowing the people coming up who were reporting to them to grow and develop. And those were very, very hard decisions, not decisions that we took lightly. It's incredibly important that we continue to develop 
more and better talent and we give people meaningful roles and responsibility. One of the things that's gone on in this crisis, which I think is just fascinating, is even though we can't teach in groups or small groups or one-on-one, I, I tap into Zoom calls on all manner of different issues across all different parts of the organization from account, junior and mid-range accounting people collecting rent and doing cash flow projections to asset management and their communications with lenders and, and, and with our investment partners to you know, hopping on with you and people about specific tenants. And I, it's, it's, it's almost surreal to be able to sit in your house, get on video, read emails, and watch people grow in front of you. I, the number of people in our organization who have stepped up beyond, not their capabilities, because they're clearly capable, but who are learning and growing even through this process, that is the thing that in the face of just some unbelievable challenges that we all face now, um, that gives me great hope. Um, those three C's, communication, collaboration, cohesion, I mean, they're better now than when we were all in offices every day or at projects every day or meeting in you know, remote locations every day. Um, the, the reality is, is that I think most people in the organization I think would tell you that they feel they have a stronger connection to me now than they did eight weeks ago. And I'm very proud of that. I think that, you know, we've spent an inordinate amount of time led by you focused on team building and focused on our culture. And I think it's times like this when it, it comes through. This is the final exam for how good your culture is. It feels like it's coming through that people you, nev- you might never have thought are stepping up. People who always step up are stepping up more. And it's amazing to see. So couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of, of that, I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be tone deaf to what is going on in the world. You've been a part of the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s, the tech bubble, 9-11, Great Recession. And now this, is there any comparison? Is this totally different? How are you feeling right now? What's your, what's your take on the world? So as you know, but perhaps maybe all of your listeners don't, um, I'm an economic historian by academic training and I wrote a thesis in economic demography. I will tell you that at least in my professional career, there is no remote comparison in terms of the level of dislocation that is occurring to the economy by this event. Um, I think that comparisons to the great financial crisis or the great recession or whatever you want to call it, 2008, 2011, um, are only relevant from the point of view that the Federal Reserve and Treasury and the ECB and the Bundesbank and all of the other institution, international monetary institutions have a toolkit of things to do that will help lessen 
the Six Sigma move we've had, the six standard deviation black swan event that we've had in terms of unlocking frozen financial markets, making sure that things like money markets and repo and all that kind of stuff work. They have a toolkit from that last event. But other than that, there's no comparison. I mean, you're talking about potentially, this could be, to my knowledge, perhaps only one of maybe the first time, but maybe one of maybe three years ever in the entire history of the United States where the population could actually shrink. That's an extraordinary thing. You know, we're in the, we're in the business of providing places for Americans, predominantly middle-class Americans to get the goods that they need to live their lives every day. And the first thing to think about is we have a total disruption of the economy, even in the savings and loan crisis, uh, which I think was a bigger hit to the real estate industry than the global financial crisis. You know, you didn't have two, three, four months of the economy simply vaporize. And remember, the economy is much bigger now than it was then. That's 25, 30 years ago. The economy is much, much bigger now than it was then. So losing 60 days of the economy is an extraordinary thing. The concept that in the last two weeks, the number of people who have had a file for unemployment and the numbers could be bigger this Thursday, just forewarning you, um, is extraordinary. So I don't think that there is a comparison. That said, the world has also never had the tools at its disposal or the knowledge at its disposal to fight that. We know the mistakes that were made in the Great Depression. We know that the lack of stimulus um, that, you know, in the, in the Hoover administration made the Great Depression far worse than it could have been. And I'm not saying by any means we're going to have a depression here. The, um, the response from both a monetary policy and now from a fiscal policy perspective by the American government is truly unprecedented truly unprecedented. The two together represent at least three X what was done in the global financial crisis. You're talking about $2.2 trillion of stimulus. I am firmly convinced there will be additional stimulus behind that. Um, you know, is the stimulus perfect? No. Is it designed uh, the way I would have designed it to get a better multiplier effect of the spending of the money on the economy? No. But the American government has put an extraordinary amount of weaponry on the field from a fiscal and a monetary policy perspective that I believe will um, radically lessen the blow of what's going on. But that said, this is, this is unlike, I, almost, there's almost no one alive who's seen something like this. You know, there are very few people who are old enough to be alive now to, to have studied and knew, understood the radical change of the economy during either world war. Um, I mean, this is, this is historical. I, as you know, I have three young adult children, one of whom actually works with you and I at DLC as part of the team. I've told them and I've told any young people who will listen to me, which probably are too many, that this is the seminal event in your life. Right here, right now, you are going to have, you are, will have lived BC and AC. 
before COVID-19 and after COVID-19. Now, the good news about this is there's going to be an end, right? There will be, there'll be, it will, it will end. There'll be drug treatments. There'll ultimately be a vaccine. You know, how much, how, what the damage is and how long it goes is very hard to predict right now. We can be hopeful that there's massive stimulus on the way. Um, I think we can be hopeful that the government will continue to do everything it possibly can to promote that. Um, and I think that, you know, the economy, I think, will be resilient. But I think it's unrealistic to expect that, you know, okay, on May 1, the economy is going to, we're going to flick a switch and the economy is just going to go back on the way it was before. I think that's unrealistic. But I also think it's unrealistic to expect that we're going to have some depression for five or 10 years. I don't believe that. Um, and I'm not a Pollyanna guy, um, but I think there are a lot of reasons to be optimistic in the midterm to long term that we will recover from this. I, I haven't heard a lot of people speak about and I'm going back to the beginning of population decline and the effect that has on the economy. I hadn't thought of that. Um, clearly, that's not good if we have population decline. You know, we, we were already in a place where the birth rate was declining. And, and, and if you have a, you know, so many deaths related to COVID-19 and potentially not as many births in the, in the short term, um, you know, that, that's not a great recipe right there. Yeah. But you know, the, the reality is, is that, and, and look, the, you know, the concept of birth rate and TFR or what demographers call total fertility rate is what I wrote my thesis about. Um, the reality is, is that what most people don't understand is the single biggest determinant of GDP growth in any given economy is the growth in the population of that economy. And you can grow, you can grow um, population in a country three ways. You can have more babies than you have people who pass away. You can have people live and work longer. And you can have in-migration. We have had in the United States in the last two decades um, a falling total fertility rate. Um, We don't look like Japan or France or Norway or Germany, but um, it has fallen and it has fallen quite a bit. Um, You know, one of America's great strengths is that... um, for all of the ups and downs in America, there are a billion people who would like to come live here. Um, and one of the things that troubles me greatly is, and you've heard me talk about this before, is not only in this administration, but particularly in this administration, but also in the prior two administrations as well, there has been a bias against increasing legal immigration. And I think that's a terrible, terrible thing. The single biggest determinant of how fast your GDP grows is how fast your population grows. Hands down. I don't care about, yeah, yes, t- productivity increases are important. Technological innovation is important. All of that stuff is true. Um, you know, your balance of trade is important. But the single biggest determinant, if 70% of your GDP is consumption by consumers, is population growth. And hopefully, one of the things that will come out of this, well, hopefully, we'll get two things out of this. One is I would hope that we would hopefully starting next year have a meaningful discussion about how to be more thoughtful about meaningful immigration. 
legal, legal immigration. And two, you know, if you're quarantining with the right people and there are rumors that certain forms of birth control are in short supply, I have no idea why in the country at the moment, you know, maybe we'll get a little baby boomlet here, um, which the, the economy would, should thank all of those, you know, people who do that um, because they, they will be doing, they will be doing their part for the economy. Um, historically, I mean, you know, if you think about things that have historically um, in the 20th century greatly impacted population growth in America, they're really, they're really a few events, right? World War I, which was actually from an American involvement perspective fairly short, but more importantly, the Spanish influenza immediately following World War I. World War II and um, the limitation of immigration after 1913. Those three things are the biggest three negative impacts against population growth in America in the 20th you know, since 1900. And if you think about it, after the First World War and after the Spanish influenza was over, there was a baby boom in the United States. And obviously, there's the famous baby boom of after World War II. Um, I don't think we're going to a world where American women 18 to 34 are going to have 3.8 live births like they did between 1946 and 1958 or 1960. But perhaps we'll go to a place where you know, one of the things that I think is going to come out of this is people are going to see the relative value of home and family. And, totally. And I think that, you know, it, it, I'm selfishly, and I'm quarantining, as you know, with my wife and two of my three adult children. My daughter is married, so she's with her husband. It's nice having your children around. It's really nice. Totally. Well, listen, th- that was fantastic. I, w- I want to pivot. And a unique perspective on where the world is today and uh, appreciate those insights. But you have an interesting story about a, about a deal and that is CVS and peak skill, New York. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. So, you know, in, in, in thinking about which, which one to talk about, it turns, you know, one of the things having done a lot of, interesting redevelopments, I had a wide variety of choices to pick from. Um, you know, whether that was the first, you know, doing the first LA fitness in the East or, you know, doing Target and Rockland. I, at the end of the day, I chose this CVS example mostly because it's a great story. Um, it's a great story at the end of the day about the friendship between two extraordinary people. So um, I spent a year in 1999 and 2000 convincing a family of six children to sell me a shopping center that their, par- their father had built, Peekskill, New York. And uh, this is a slight aside, my wife's family had had a store in that shopping center um, when my wife was a child growing up. And when I met my wife, she was living across the street from the center, just coincidentally. Um, and we bought the center. It was a total redevelopment play. And um, Right after we bought it, the grocer, Grand Union, filed for bankruptcy. Um, and we went to like 70% occupancy and it was falling apart. And it was really, it went from being a very great redevelopment potential to being a, um, uh, a potentially real problem. <laughs> and um, I, convinced, um, I convinced Stop and Shop to include the, lo- the, the Grand Union location in their bid in, in the bankruptcy, in the Grand Union bankruptcy, and they bought 61 locations, including this one. And I said, oh, great, they're going to run it until we can redevelop it. And they called me up and said, yeah, 
we bought 61 stores. We're going to run 60 of them. We're closing yours. We would love to do a redevelopment with you, but unless you can figure it out, we can't run that store profitably. And the store was like 33,000 feet. So it was a bad size. Um, immediately adjacent to that grand union box was a 9,600 square foot CVS. Um, that was on an original 1956 lease from the Whalen Drug Company. And next to that were nine inline tenants in nine inline spaces, seven of which were occupied. Um, and we set out to try and figure out how to redevelop the shopping center. And Stop and Shop wanted to build their brand new Richmond prototype, which is about 70, 65, 70,000 square feet. And it required, um, amongst other things, relocating. CVS and seven inline tenants, none of whom had relocation clauses or demolition clauses in their lease. And CVS did about $11 million a year and they had a big percentage rent payment. Um, and we dealt with two different people at CVS who basically told us to go pound sand for two years. And we couldn't figure out why. And we were offering them anything and anything, you know, we'll find another location in town and move you out. We'll try to put you in a pad in our parking lot. No, 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 no. So literally like we were banging our heads against the wall, the regional guy, the VP, nobody wanted to talk to us. We would talk to them and it was in one ear out the other. We were making no headway and it was not a good situation and stop and shop was very anxious. And, um, so one day in a conversation with Stop and Shop, and I was working with my friend at Stop and Shop, Tim Mahoney, he said, well, you know, you really ought to talk to Tony. And Tony was Tony Calavope, who was the head of real estate for Stop and Shop at the time. Um, because I think there's a lot behind the scenes here that even I don't know about. And it turns out that Tony had a relationship with my father, Steve, my partner. And so they spoke and my father came in my office and said, we got a real problem. I said, I know we got a problem. Did you do anything to solve it? He says, no, we have a bigger problem. He goes, apparently CVS and Stop and Shop are fighting, including in some places litigating exclusive violations between each other in 46 locations. And I was like, oh, I'm like, well, no wonder. Backing up, Tony, Tony's from CVS, not Stop and no, Shop, right? Tony, Tony Calavope was the head of real estate for Stop and Shop and then okay. Aho. Got it. So then all of a sudden, one day, we get a phone call. And we get a phone call from somebody who says, I am the new regional representative at CVS for WestJet to, to cover, amongst other things, Beach Shopping Center in Peekskill, New York. And the gentleman at the other end of the phone who called my father was Al Caligari. And it was the first time that we had ever heard of Al Caligari. And Al had been at CVS for probably, I don't know, somewhere three, four, five years. I knew he had been at Burger King before that. Never done a deal with him. My father had never done a deal with him. And he said, I'd like to come, you know, meet you. So my father and Al met for the first time. And Al gave my father the whole download on the level of the fight and the animosity between the personalities in Socket, Rhode Island, where CVS is headquartered, and in Quincy, Massachusetts, where Stop and Shop and Ahold USA are headquartered. Um, and 
together, they mapped out a plan where Al got a whole bunch of people at CVS to agree on locations where they would horse trade with Stop and Shop. And my father became the go-between because they wouldn't talk to each other between Stop and Shop and CVS to resolve the, um, to resolve it so that we could make a deal in peak scale. And then Al came to us and made it, it was a tough deal. I'll never forget it. But literally we moved them. We, they finally agreed to move to a pad. They got a prototypical pad with a double drive-through. We had amongst other things, do $800,000 of additional site work to build retaining walls to get their building to fit on the site. I went and got four different variances for that building alone from the city of Peekskill. And we built them a turnkey down at the cash wraps and their rent went down. And it was all good in the end because as scary as that, as crazy as that sounds, it enabled us to demo one end of the center spent $4 million to flatten the site. We built Stop and Shop. Stop and Shop and us had had a deal on rent and it was a, I, you know, it was a pretty good deal. And um, you know, at the end of the day, the cost to move CVS just got so crazy. I went to Stop and Shop and they're like, Adam, don't come to us. We have no more money. We have no more rent. We have no <laughs> more money. There's nothing we can give you. And I said, well, would you give me more term?" And they're like, yeah, we'll give you more term. So we ended up with an exceptionally long lease. It's, it's, it's not a 20, it wasn't a 20 year lease. It's either 25 or 29 year base term lease. Um, and it all worked out, you know, it all worked out in the end. We were able with, um, with stop and shop and, um, with stop and shop and CVS's anchors. And we brought Dollar Tree in and we bought a whole bunch of other locals, nationals and regionals in, you know, we took a center that we had paid about $15 million for spent about 19 more and you know we ended up with an asset that was worth a multiple of that total you know that total investment it's one of the best certainly one of the best deals we've ever done it's certainly one of the most rewarding deals i think we ever did um but you know to build a turnkey cvs and watch the rent go down was pretty crazy and you know for for the longest time after that everything was fine the center became very successful and um, as good as the deal was, that's not the best part of the story. The best part of the story is um, after th- starting probably three or four years after that store was built and open, um, my father spent three years convincing Al Caligari to come to DLC. And the real benefit we got from moving CVS from inline from that whale and drug 1956 lease was that Al came to be part of DLC and helped us build our own net lease development business, which has been, as you know, um, very successful. Al's been an extraordinary team member, an extraordinary partner. Um, And he really became one of my father's closest friends. So the best thing that came out of that store that ended up there in your neighborhood was that two people that not that many people know, Al Caligari and Steve Ifshin became best friends. Um, and that was really the greatest part about it. And then there's one last little tidbit. So CVS did about $11, 12000000 million. The last year they were in line, 
And as I told you, their rent went down for no expenditure on their part. Um, and many, many years later, Al Caligari told me that the pro forma first year sales, which they met in that store, were over $22 million when he oh took it to committee. <laughs> so they could have paid me double the rent. They were oh paying. My goodness. So it, yeah, but you know what? It turned out to be a win-win for everybody. It was a win for the community. It was a win for the local consumer. It was a win for us. It was a win for Stop and Shop. It was clearly a big win for Al and his career at CVS. CVS not only got the store in Peekskill, but they got a resolution to fights they were having all over New York State and New England between them and Stop and Shop. And Stop and Shop got the same thing. Um, and Steve Ifshin and Al Caligari found best friends. So it was That's a win, a- win, 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 win. Unbelievable story. It's one of my favorites. That's I'm, I'm so glad you got to share that with us. It is, that is unbelievable real estate story and way more than a real estate story. So I think that's going to get a, uh, a lot of positive feedback from everyone out there. Um, so many uh, takeaways. One thing I've, I, I've never asked about that. And I know the story, whatever happened, the, the seven inline guys, that weren't CVS. Did you buy them out? Did you terminate them? Or are they tenants in our center today? So it's a mix. I think at the end of the day, one, one we bought out for cash. One, we had a deal to buy out for cash and he ended up, um, something happened. I don't remember what happened. He got sick or he may, one sort of just went away one we bought out and there were seven. So five others we relocated and a couple of them are still there. So pastels, which is sort of like the coffee shop, right? Yep. They're still there. Um, and we moved them kitchen and all, um, we moved, can't remember. I think we moved the liquor store. I can't remember. I, we moved the flooring guy who I think is no longer with us, but He's was with us anymore. for probably 10 years after we moved him. And we moved Payless, who was with us until they went bankrupt. Got it. So, yeah, no, it's some of the, there is it, at least, I think they're probably, I'd have to go back and I didn't look at a, I didn't look at a site plan before this, but there are at least, I think there are at least two. Got it. And well, remember listen. the, the deal, the, those tenants were relocated in the fall of 2002 because stop and shop opened in the fall of 2004. So they may have been, a, they were either really, they were probably relocated in early 2003. Unbelievable story. That That's really cool. I think there's a, a lot of takeaways for the listeners, whether you're a finance guy, a leasing guy, it doesn't matter. That, that's a great story. So there, really- you know what? We could, we could, we could do a whole separate thing on the other parts of beach, some of the construction stuff and yeah, was crazy. The site work was crazy. The financing was crazy, but I, I still, the best part of the story to me is, is the Steve and Al part of the story. Yeah. And now I get the good fortune every day to be on our 8am executive management call and Al's on there. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> we all have a lot of things to thank Steve Ifshin for. So, um, all right. That was awesome story. Now to the last part of our uh, program here. 
So I know you've, you've listened retail wisdom last part of the show and three questions. Are you ready? Ready. Best piece of commercial real estate advice out there for everyone. It's always people before assets. And in the context of people, particularly now when I think a lot of people tend to have a very zero sum mentality, the way to do great things with people is to craft win-win solutions whenever possible. Okay. All right. Love that. I agree. Um, we say it all the time here. We're people first, assets second. So it's one of my favorite things, if not my favorite thing about this organization. So I'm glad you have that view. Second question, and I'm really interested to see, hear this one. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Extinct retailer I wish would come back from the dead. This, this, one, this one actually is like alarmingly hard for me. So I, I have a very personal one, which was not a chain, which is when I was a kid, I used to collect stamps and there was this little tiny stamp store in Midtown called Diplomat. And the old man who ran it taught me so much. So he was, that was my personal fave. But I have a very odd one from the chain world, um, which is the first shopping center I ever bought as a principal had a service merchandise in it. And while I thought service merchandise was a terrible retailer, I wish they weren't extinct because Ray Zimmerman, who was the CEO of service merchandise, was the first CEO of a retailer who ever asked me for a favor that I could actually grant. <laughs> what was the favor? So he asked me for additional signage, which the previous owner had denied. And I thought it was the stupidest thing I had ever heard. Why wouldn't you let a retailer put a sign on the back of their store as well as the front? And um, he actually got down on his knees in his leasing suite in Las Vegas and asked me for a favor. I was 20, what was I? I was 26 years old. And Ray Zimmerman was like, he's like 60 at the time. And here he is, he's this big muckety muck CEO. And he actually got down on his knees and asked me for an extra sign. And I was like, you can have whatever you want, Mr. Zimmerman. And actually, Chris, a guy you just did a deal with was in the room when that happened. His young director of real estate was Rick Franz. Huh. And Rick Franz was in the room when it happened. Interesting. For those who don't know, Rick is at Ulta now. Uh, that, that'll be a fan favorite. Interesting. So the, the last question. I don't know how long it's been since you've been, you know, grooming a beard and wearing a beard, but it hasn't been, it's not five years, maybe two years, maybe less than that. It's, 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 I can tell you exactly what it is. Unfortunately, it's a marker in my life, but I grew, I grew, I've had, I had had a beard on and off from the time I was 19 but I hadn't had a beard in many, many years. And I grew my beard back after my father passed, which was in November of 2016. All right. So, uh, that said, one of the, the hottest beard companies out there, the beardclub.com, they have a, their, their, their club kit, which includes the PT 45 trimmer, free cedar beard oil, Cedar beard balm and beard shampoo with your first order. 
What is the retail price of the PT45 beard trimmer club kit? Wow. I, I, you know, I legitimately have no idea. Right. And this is like what it normally costs, not what they give it away for the first time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, 39.99. Close $55, but thank you for playing. <laughs> uh, that was good. Well, listen, that was amazing, Adam. Thank you so much. Um, everyone's going to love this. I think this is amazing timing. I'm pumped. And I think your family will enjoy it. I think everyone at DLC is going to enjoy it when they hear this Al story. Thank you very much. Love you, buddy. Love you too. So talk to you at 8 a.m. You got it. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.